You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Richard Kilmer, San Antonio, Texas. Astounding Stories, 19, July 1931. The Doom from Planet Four by Jack Williamson, Part Two. In a moment, with a sheet draped around him like a Roman toga, and the kitten on his arm, he advanced to meet the owner of the beautiful voice. At the trail he met a trim, attractive-looking young woman, clad in out-of-door attire and with a canvas knapsack on her back. Bareheaded, she wore her brown hair closely shingled. Her face, Dan recognized from the photograph he had seen five years before, though it was more lovely than the splotched newspaper picture had hinted. Her brown eyes were filled with laughter at his predicament and his present unusual garb. He bowed with mock gravity and said, How do you do, Miss Helen Hunter? Brown eyes widened in surprise. You know me, she asked. Not half so well as I hope to, he grinned. Then, handing her the kitten, he spoke seriously. What about this island, the green flashes, the big machine on the mountain, the metal thing that jumps about like a grasshopper? What's it all about? You know anything about it? Yes, I know a great deal about it, she told him soberly. It's rather a terrible story, and one you may not believe. No, you've seen them, but the kitten is hungry, and you must be too if you swam ashore. Well, yes, I am, Dan admitted. The storm clouds were drifting out to sea. The sun was beginning to assert itself, and it now lighted up the scene with a cheerful brightness. She slung off her pack and sat down cross-legged at the side of the trail. Dan sat down opposite her as she opened the knapsack and produced a can of condensed milk, one of sardines, a can opener, and half a loaf of bread. I had to select my supplies rather at random, she said, and you'll have to make the best of them. She started to open the sardines. You'd better give it to me, Dan advised. You might cut your hand. You think so? she asked, deftly lifting the lid, fishing out a fish for the kitten, and presenting the can to Dan. Then, with capable hands, she broke off a large chunk of bread, which she handed him. Go ahead and finish this up, she said. I've already had breakfast. She punched two holes in the end of the milk can and poured some of the thick yellow fluid into the palm of her left hand, from which she let the kitten lap it. And now for the mystery of the island, Dan demanded, forgetting bread and sardines in his eagerness. The girl turned her face to him. I'm Helen Hunter, as you seem to know, she began. I came here with my father five years ago to observe an eclipse of the sun. When it was all over and the ship called to take us off, he decided to send the results of our observations by one of the other men. He wanted to stay here to carry on another experiment, the one that led to that machine on the hill. Part of the other men were willing to stay. The yacht left us here and has been back from San Francisco every six months since, with mail and supplies. And what was the experiment? Dan demanded eagerly. Have you ever looked at Mars through a good telescope, she countered? Then you must have seen the canals. Straight dark lines running from the white polar caps 
to the equatorial zone. All scientists did not agree as to what they were, but nobody could suggest a natural origin for them. My father was one of those who thought that the canals were fertile, cultivated strips, irrigated with water, brought down from the melting ice caps. Irrigation systems meant intelligent life upon the planet, and his experiment was an attempt to communicate with that intelligence. And he succeeded? Dan was astounded. Yes, the means was simple enough. Other men had suggested it years before, in fact. Any fairly bright light on Mars, such as the beam of a searchlight directed toward Earth, would be visible in a good telescope when the planet is favorably situated. It follows that such a light on Earth should be visible to an observer with a similar instrument on Mars. It was possible, of course, but unlikely, that Mars would have intelligent inhabitants still ignorant of the telescope. It was also possible that their senses would be different from ours, that, if they saw it all, it would be with a different part of the spectrum. Father took the chance, and he succeeded. The call was simple, merely three flashes of light repeated again and again. We used a portable searchlight mounted on a motor truck such as is used in the Army. The three flashes meant that we were on the third planet of the solar system. The answering call from the fourth planet should be four flashes, of course. For three nights we kept signaling. One of the men watched the motor generator, and I operated the searchlight, swinging it on Mars and off again, to make the flashes. Dad kept his eye screwed to the telescope. Nothing happened, and he got discouraged. I persuaded him to keep on for another night, in case they hadn't seen us at first, or needed more time to get their searchlight ready. And on the fourth night, poor Dad came out of the observatory, shouting that he had seen four flashes. Dan gasped, speechless with astonishment. Then that machine, with the needle pointing at Mars and the green flashes, and the thing that jumped at me. Helen waved a white hand for silence. Just keep cool a minute. I'm coming to them. The four flashes just began it. In a few days, Dad and the Martians were communicating by a sort of television process. He would mark off a sheet of paper into squares, blacken some of the squares to make a picture or design. Then have me send a flash for each blank square and miss an interval for each white one, taking them in regular order. The Martians seemed to catch on pretty soon. In a few days, Dad was receiving pictures of the same sort. Rather a slow way of communicating, perhaps, but it worked better than one might think at first. In a month, Dad had received instructions for building a small machine like the big one on the hill. It is something like radio. At least it operates with vibrations in the ether. But it's as much ahead of our radio as an airplane is in advance of a fire balloon. I understand a good bit about it but I won't try to explain it now. And in the next three years, Dad learned no end of things from the people on Mars. One queer thing about it was that they never let us see them on the television apparatus, no matter how many of their scientific secrets they gave us. 
Dad and I exhibited ourselves, but I don't know yet what the Martians look like, though I have made a guess. By the end of the third year, they had showed Dad how to make one of those metal things. Like that one that jumped at me, Dan broke in with a shudder. Yes, they seem almost alive, but they are machines, like our robots, and controlled by the radio apparatus. The eyes use photoelectric cells and relay what is before them to the master intelligence. The girl spoke these last words in a low tone, shrinking involuntarily. She paused a moment, then shrugged and continued. The first machine did not obey my father. It was controlled by signals that came from Mars, over the big station on the hill. And it went to work, making more apparatus, building more machines, enlarging the receiving station. It worked in obedience to the master intelligence on Mars. That was a year ago. The last time the yacht called, my father and the other men still hoped to control the machines. They let her go back without us. The machines tolerated us a while, paid no attention to us. They were busy working mines and building huge, strange things that must be flying machines. The plateau on the other side of the peak is crowded with them. For the machines are preparing to leave the island. They are going to conquer the world for the master intelligence on Mars. Months ago, my father discovered this, and he realized that he had loosed doom upon the Earth. He and the other three men planned to destroy that big station on the peak. All the signals to the machines are relayed through that from Mars. The machines seem to pay no heed as they made their preparations. Then one night, about three weeks ago, they tried to dynamite the station. The girl's shoulder trembled. She paused to brush a tear from her eye, then went on hastily, in a voice grown husky with emotion. Dan felt an odd desire to take her slight form in his arms and comfort her in her grief. The machines had seemed heedless, but they were ready. They had those discs that throw the green fire. We had not seen them before. And, well, all four of them were killed. Dan handed her the disc of green crystal he had taken from the thing that had attacked him. She examined it silently, then went on. Dad had left me in bed, but I heard the explosion. I think the bombs went off when the green fire struck them. I knew what had happened and got out of the house just before the machines arrived. They wrecked the place with their green flashes. And for the last three weeks, I've been hiding in the jungle or watching for ships. Three times I've raided the ruins of the house for something to eat. Fortunately, it didn't burn like your ship. And that's all, I suppose, except I'm awfully glad that you got ashore. Thanks, Dan said earnestly. And what are we going to do now? I don't know, Helen answered in a troubled tone. I'm afraid, afraid for all humanity. On the television, I've seen enough of Mars to be sure that it is a world of machines, controlled by one master intelligence and even that may be a machine. We make machines that compute the tides and carry out other computations that are almost beyond the power of the human mind. Why couldn't a machine think? The master intelligence on Mars plans to add the Earth 
to his domain. Unless we can do something to stop it, in a few years, the world will be overrun with gigantic robot machines, controlled by force from across the gulf of space. Humanity cannot resist them. Imagine a battleship pitted against that green annihilating ray and all the other science of an elder planet. Life is to be blotted out. The master intelligence of Mars will rule two worlds of mechanical monsters. Dan sat in a dazed vision of horror to come, until Helen straightened up as if shaking off a mantle of fear and smiled heroically, if a bit wanly. Now you must eat your bread and sardines to give you strength to fight for humanity, she cried, with a laugh that she strived, not too successfully, to make cheerful and gay. Obediently, he began to eat, finding an excellent appetite. It was several minutes later that he fancied he heard a whirring and crackling in the brush behind them. He sprang to his feet in alarm. It can't be far back to where I left the machine, he cried. Do you suppose there's danger of that? The mechanical ears of the metal things may have picked up the sound of his voice, but in any event, green flame flashed about them on the instant. Feeling a sudden protective impulse, Dan started toward Helen. That was his last recollection before what seemed a terrific concussion swept him into the abyss of unconsciousness. His first thought when he awakened was of the girl, but he was alone in the silence of the canyon. He sat up, realizing that many hours had passed, for the air was growing cool again, and the sun was low behind the peak at the head of the ravine. The huge, mysterious machine of the purple ring and the vibrating white needle were blazing splendidly. He took more detailed stock of his immediate surroundings. The tangle of brush that had sheltered them had been cut away by the green annihilating ray. Charred stumps remained to show where it had fired the bushes beyond the trail. His own shoulder was blistered, a hole was burned in the sheet wound about him, and the hair was singed from the back of his head. Suddenly, trembling with horror, he looked about for anything to show that Helen had perished by the ray. Discovering nothing, he breathed a sigh of relief. She must be still alive anyhow, he muttered, and I've had another lucky break. The ray was too high to get me. They must have left me for dead. Presently he became conscious of torturing thirst. He retired through the brush along the rocky wall of the canyon. By sunset he came upon a little natural basin in a rock, half full of rainwater. It was none too clean, but he drank his fill of it and felt relief. Looking up the canyon, he could see the great mechanism on the peak gleaming in the dusk. Intensely glowing purple mist clung about the great metal ring, and the slender, delicate needle swung below it, still vibrating, still throbbing with brilliant white radiance. It pointed at the red eye of Mars, which had just winked into view. Dan stared at it a long time. It all sounds crazy, he muttered but it isn't. The master intelligence of Mars, she said, is controlling the mechanical thing through that. The doom of the Earth is coming through that white needle. 
If only I could smash it somehow. He looked down at the white folds of the sheet that draped him and clenched his hands impotently. No gun, not even a pocket knife, nothing but my bare hands. He bit his lip. Still, he stared challengingly at the gleaming mechanism on the peak. An idea slowly took form in his mind. An exclamation abruptly escaped him. Narrowly, he eyed the trussed girders of the silver towers which supported the great ring, muttering to himself. Yes, I can do it, if I don't get caught. I can climb it well enough. The needle looks a bit frail. I should be able to smash it. I'd like to see Helen again, though. He gathered the sheet around him and began picking a cautious way up the canyon, staying always in the cover of boulders or brush. A few times he disturbed a rock or snapped a twig beneath his foot. Then he waited out of sight for long minutes, though he had no reason to believe that the metal monsters were on the alert for him. I've got to do it. The world depends on it, he kept saying again and again in his mind. The quick darkness of the tropics had fallen almost before he started, but he welcomed the night, for if it made his own silent progress more difficult, it reduced the hazard that he would be discovered. Gauging the time by the slow wheeling of the diamond-like stars across the velvet sky, he thought that two hours had passed when he reached the head of the canyon. He stood up cautiously to survey the little plateau at the summit of the hill. It was several acres in extent, quite level, and almost clear of vegetation. At the far side was a pile of wreckage, which, he supposed, had been the quarters of Dr. Hunter's party before they had been destroyed. Many huge machines stood about the plateau, vast, dark masses looming in the starlight. Mostly they were either not running or very silent in operation, but a very deep, vibrating humming sound came from one near him. Smaller shapes were moving about them, with long, easy leaps. These, he knew, were the mechanical monsters, though it was too dark to distinguish them. But by far the most prominent object upon the plateau was the enormous gleaming thing that Helen had said was the station over which came the signals from the Master Intelligence on Mars. One of its three towers sprang up not far from where he stood. The huge, refulgent ring, swathed in its mist of purple fire, was a full hundred feet above him, and the slender needle, pulsating with white flame, swinging within and below the colossal ring, was itself a hundred feet in length. The white needle, for all its length, seemed hardly thicker than a man's finger. It was mounted at the top of a curiously complex and delicate-looking device that spread broadly out between the three towers, below the center of the huge purple ring. Dan looked at it and decided that his plan had at least a chance of success though he had no hope that it would not be fatal to him. Quickly and silently, he ran to the base of the mighty silver towers nearest him and began to climb the side toward the ravine, where the maze of girders would hide him, at least partially, from any watchers back on the plateau. The starlight and faint weird radiance of the purple ring above sufficed to guide him. 
The cross braces on the girder he had chosen were spaced closely enough to serve as the rungs of a ladder. Dan climbed easily, pausing twice for breath and to look down at the dark plateau. The vast humming machines loomed up strangely in the pale purple light that fell from the gleaming ring. Once he looked across toward the other side of the island. The surface there was more level. He glimpsed tiny moving lights and huge stationary masses, apparently as large as ocean liners. He had an impression of a vast amount of mechanical activity, proceeding in the darkness very rapidly and in a silent and orderly fashion. The expeditionary force of the Master Intelligence of Mars, he thought, preparing to set out against humanity. And what I can do is the only chance to stop it. He climbed again with renewed energy. A few yards more brought him to the colossal metal ring. Resting upon the three towers, it was a circular band of shining metal a foot thick and as wide as a road. The intense purple glow extended several feet from its surface. Dan touched it tentatively. He felt a tingling electric shock, and he thought he could feel a radiation coming from it, giving him a curious sensation of cold. As he reached his hand up and grasped the upper edge of the great ring, he felt what seemed a physical current of cold. Controlling his tendency to shiver, he climbed upon the last brace and, lifting his weight with his hands, threw himself face down upon the flat surface of the vast ring. He lay bathed in cold purple fire. He tingled with the chill of it. A frozen current seemed to penetrate his body. Involuntarily he trembled, lost his grip, and dangled precariously from the rim. Only a frantic scrambling restored his hold. Then, fighting, the sensation of freezing cold that came from the mist of purple flame, he drew himself forward and got to his feet upon the broad surface of the metal ring. On both sides it curved away like a circular track. Red, violet fire shimmered about it, bathing him to the waist in a chilling torrent. Through corsicating, frozen flame, he waited to the inner rim of the colossal ring. Below him hung the needle, a mere straight line of white fire a hundred feet in length. Eye-dazzling radiance scintillating along it, waxing and waning with a curious throbbing rhythm. The needle vibrated a little, but it pointed directly at the red point of Mars, now almost directly overhead. Repressing a shudder, Dan looked down at the complex and delicate apparatus upon which the slender needle was mounted. It was a light frame of white metal bars, with spidery coils and huge glowing tubes and flimsy spinning disks mounted in it. The gleaming needle was mounted much like a telescope at the top of the device, fully fifty feet below him. Looks flimsy enough, Dan muttered. I'll go through it like a sixteen-inch shell. Who would have thought I'd end this way? He stepped back for a moment and stood on the polished metal, hidden to the waist in cold purple flame. Lest it impede his movements, he tore the sheet from him and threw it aside. He let his eyes sweep for the last time over the familiar constellations blazing so splendidly in the black sky above. He had a pang of heartache 
as if the stars were old friends. His glance roved fondly over the dark, indistinct masses of the island and across the black plain of the sea. Well, no good in waiting, he muttered again. Sorry, I can't see Helen. Hope she gets off all right. He backed to the outer rim and drew a deep breath like one about to dive. Then, with set face, he sprinted forward. As he did so, a blinding flash of green light flickered up before him. He ducked his head and leapt from the inner edge to the vast glowing ring. For long seconds, it seemed, he was plunging down through space, feet first. Air rushed screaming about his ears. But his mind was quite calm and registered an astonishing large series of impressions. He saw the delicate gleaming machine rushing up to meet him. The shimmering white needle swung on its top. He took in the silent dark plateau with the masses of the great machines rising like ominous shadows here and there, and the mechanical monsters leaping busily about it, almost invisible in the dim, ghostly radiance that fell from the purple ring. He saw a vivid flame of green reach up past him from somewhere below. He knew without emotion or alarm that he had been discovered and that it was too late for his discoverers to stop him. He found time, even, for a fleeting thought of death. His mind framed the question, What will I be in a moment from now? Then he struck the great white needle and was crashing into the delicate apparatus below it. Waves of pain beat upon his mind, like flashes of blinding light. But his last mental image, as he passed into oblivion, was a picture of Helen's face, oddly, it was not her face as he had last seen it, but a reproduction of the old newspaper half-tone, curiously retouched with life and color. There is little more to tell. It was some weeks later when Dan came back out of a world of delirium and dreams to find himself lying on his back in a tent, very much bandaged. He was alone at the moment, and at first could not recall that tremendous last day of his conscious life. Then he heard a thrillingly familiar feminine voice calling, Kitty, Kitty, Kitty. He tried to move. A dull pain throbbed in his breast, and a groan escaped him. In a moment, Helen appeared. The gray kitten was forgotten. She looked very anxious and solicitous, and also, Dan thought, very beautiful. No, no, she cried. You are going to be all right. Dad made me learn a little elementary medicine before we came here and I know. But you mustn't speak, not for days yet. I'll have to guess what you want, and you can wink when I guess the right thing. Gee, but I'm glad you've come, too. You'll be as well as ever, pretty soon. The kitten was lots of comfort. Still? Dan attempted to move. She leaned over him, shifted his weight, and smoothed the sheet with strong, capable hands. You want to know about what happened to the machine monsters? He winked. Well, you remember when they found us and shot the green ray at us? They left you there, and I thought you were dead, and carried me up here on the hill. Perhaps they wanted me for a laboratory subject to test the green ray on or something of the kind. Anyhow, they carried me into a big shed filled with strange machines. They kept me there until that night. 
Then, all of a sudden, they all stopped. They froze. They were dead. The tentacles of the one that was holding me were set about me, but I worked free and got out of the shed. It took all night, and when I came out just at sunrise, I saw that the purple fire was gone from the great ring. The needle was knocked down, and the apparatus smashed. I found you there in the wreckage. You made a human bullet of yourself to smash it. The greatest thing a man ever did. Though normally rather modest, Dan felt a glow of pride at the honest admiration ringing in her clear voice and shining from her warm brown eyes. So I gathered up what was left of you, she went on, and tried to put you back together again. A good many bones were broken, and you had more cuts and bruises than I could mention. But the apparatus had broken the force of the fall, and you were still alive. You are remarkably well put together, I should say, and unusually lucky as well. And, well, the machines and apparatus are scattered all about over the island. Every one of them stopped the instant you smashed that connection with the directing intelligence on Mars. There'll be quite a stir in the scientific world, I imagine, in about three weeks when the yacht comes and carries us back with a lot of plans and specimens. We must send about a thousand engineers back here to study what we leave behind us. And do you want anything else? She bent over and watched his bandaged face. Looking up into her bright eyes, thrilling to the cool, comforting pressure of her hand on his forehead, Dan reflected. Then he winked. Something you want me to do? He winked. When? Right now? No response. After the yacht comes? He winked. What is it? She looked him in the eye, blushed a little, and laughed. You mean? Dan winked. End of Section 2 End of The Doom from Planet 4 by Jack Williamson